0: Lisa Treat, Associate Editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science. Today's guest is Katie Whitkwitz, who is a distinguished professor in the Department of Psychology, as well as the director of the Center on Alcohol, Substance Use, and Addictions at the University of New Mexico. Dr. Witkiewicz authored a recently published article in Current Directions in Psychological Science that is titled, Everybody Hurts. Intersecting and Colliding Epidemics and the Need for Integrated Behavioral Treatment of Chronic Pain and Substance Use. Katie, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with us today about your important contributions to psychological science.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's it's great to be here and to be participating in this podcast.
0: Could you kick off our conversation today by helping us to understand why it is helpful and important to study and treat chronic pain and substance use disorders simultaneously rather than separately?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I should say I want to start by just giving a shout out to my my good colleague and co-author Kevin Vowels. Uh, Dr. Vowels and I were fortunate enough to be hired at the University of New Mexico at the same time. And the story of this paper really started from our very first meeting as uh, as new faculty. And he was a person who studied chronic pain, mm-hmm. and I was a person who studied substance use disorders. And we were, were both licensed clinical psychologists. Both of us had done a lot of treatment development and treatment work, me with patients with substance use disorder, and Kevin with patients with chronic pain. And we would start talking in those early years. And... First, we started talking about research and, you know, Kevin would say, you know, I do all this research with patients with chronic pain, but I never ask about their substance use. And I would say, I do all this research with patients with substance use disorders, and I never ask about their pain. And so our collaboration really started in that context, in the, in the notion of us looking at these two things together. And, and I should say that this is in the early, uh, you know, or this is in 2010 um and so 2011 so this is before the heal initiative kicked Mm -hmm. off with all the funding for opioid use disorder and pain and and so really early on where there was where was absolutely no one really working in this space Mm -hmm. for the most part there were a few groups uh you know who we got to know because there were very few of us who were working at, at the intersection of pain and substance use disorder and because there was no one asking these questions, we really didn't have a big sense of the scope of the problem. Mm -hmm. And when we started asking the question, what we found, and a few other groups had also demonstrated this in some epidemiological studies and some small select clinical samples, that patients with chronic pain often had co-occurring difficulties with substance use, sometimes Mm -hmm. rising to the level of substance use disorder. And then, in, in my studies, we started to see that patients with substance use disorder, a lot of them had chronic pain, mm-hmm. upwards of 60 to 70 to even in some samples, 80% wow. of patients with substance use disorder, also having some, you know, having chronic pain. And in many cases, we're using substances in part, you know, for self-medication of, of sure. pain symptoms, And so the, it became really clear really quickly that, that these were um, commonly co-occurring mm-hmm. uh, issues, and and sometimes you know I think everything's on a spectrum, right? Everything sure. is is on a continuum, and so I think there's a lot of patients with chronic pain who are using who are using substances without any harms, mm-hmm. and some that are using substances with a little bit of harm, and some that were using substances and experiencing a lot of harm from their substance use. So there's kind of a, you know, among patients with chronic pain, there's a there's a continuum of substance use find substance and potentially substance related problems. But I, I want to disabuse everyone of the notion that every patient with chronic pain who uses substances a, has a substance use disorder. I don't that that's not what we that's not what we know. What we know is that there are some patients with chronic pain who struggle with substance use disorders, some who use substances without harm and some who use with some harm. Same thing with sub, people with substance use disorder. Um, okay. Some of them are experiencing chronic pain at very severe levels. Some of them have kind of lower level chronic pain. So mm-hmm. so I think that, that there are these overlapping clinical populations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we were doing research in this, and then we started talking about treatment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what was also really fascinating is when Kevin would talk about the patients he was treating with chronic pain and what challenges they had. You know, in a behavioral treatment, what were they working on? What were the goals of the treatment? And and he would describe that to me and I would just say, Wow, like these are the same things I'm working on with my patients with substance use disorder. It was the same challenges that were coming up, the same kind of goals and and behavioral targets. Yeah. And so it seemed like very early, very quickly, that we would probably be able to create something where we could treat these things simultaneously, because a lot of the behavioral targets were were similar across these two seemingly, or you know, previously and seemingly different um, disorders. That they they, evol- they evolve or they revolve around the same sort of um, behavioral tendencies that mm-hmm. that are causing. Um, dysfunction and harm. Mm-hmm.
0: And we'll get to that more in a few minutes when we talk about your conceptual model um, that mm-hmm. the two of you have developed. So um, what do we know about how the marked increase in opioid prescriptions for chronic pain over the last three decades has affected the experience and care of persons with chronic pain and substance use disorders? Yeah, it's such
1: it's, it's a, you know, it's such a challenging, um, such a... Yeah. Challenging question in in a lot of respects because it's um, I think we're living at this at this juncture of witnessing decades of failed medical treatment
2: mm-hmm.
1: and 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 overcorrection that is also resulting in failed medical treatment mm-hmm. so so you know what happened I think there's a, a number of, of factors that that are coming in here. Um, First of all, um, I always like to acknowledge that, and this plays into our theoretical model as well, mm-hmm. that adding pain is a vital sign. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. Signaled signaled to doctors and to patients that pain is something that we need to keep track of and we need to not have it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, even the the sign they show you in the doctor's office where the the smiley face and the frown mm-hmm. right, that pain is bad mm-hmm. and we don't want it. And so that happened. And that was really pushed by a pharmaceutical company that was marketing opioids. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, and and there was a belief uh, that we all know now to be you know, based on a lot of lies and deception. And now lawsuits have have come, you know, come to fruition and opioid settlement funds are now available. And I'm not going to go into that history because I, I honestly, sure. you know, sure. we could spend two hours just talking about that. But but basically what happened, the gist of it was opioids were prescribed like candy, right? And yes. um, I often, I share a story when I was uh, a graduate student, I broke my wrist skiing and went to an emergency room and they literally handed me a Ziploc bag full of Percocet. Oh my word. And, and so this was in um, the year... 2000. Um, and that's what was happening. I mean, here I yeah. was, yeah. I was, you know, a pretty healthy
2: mm-hmm.
1: person in my in my 20s with a very simple wrist fracture. And I was handed a bag full of Percocet and a prescription to to mm-hmm. refill. And, um, you know, I had this experience of of knowing, having some good self-awareness at the time. To know that I was starting to take those pills not because of pain, and mm-hmm. like to to start to recognize that, whoa, these pills were really powerful, mm-hmm. um, and and I never refilled that prescription, and you know mm-hmm. I feel very um, fortunate that I I saw that in myself mm-hmm. that I saw that that I was starting to not to not to take these pills not for mm-hmm. pain, um, but I think it 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 shows that you know a lot of people were getting a lot of opioids maybe. That they didn't need, and and maybe kept taking them, and and mm-hmm. it's really important to note though that not everyone who takes opioids for pain has an opioid use disorder, and we need to stop stop vilifying mm-hmm. uh, the use of opioids um, mm-hmm. because for some people they are helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, all of that said, these are acute. These these were really marketed in acute pain. Um, setting, right? And that was an Mm -hmm. acute pain setting, right? I went to the ER, I had a broken wrist.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, there was not ever, and there continues to be not good data that long-term opioid therapy is effective for chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And so even at the time there was, there was not a lot of data suggesting that, that long-term opioid therapy is, is an effective means for the management of chronic pain. Um, and if anything, there might be, um, you know, hyperalgesia and hypersensitization mm-hmm. that could happen from long-term opioid therapy. Now, I want to be cautious because that's on average, and there are many people who are helped by long-term opioid therapy who have mm-hmm. chronic pain. And so that was the history. And now I'm going to flash forward to today and in the last mm-hmm. several years. Mm-hmm. And, and what's happened where the overcorrection and now again, fail failure of the medical system has been the deprescribing, Mm-hmm. And the tapering, mm-hmm. the forced tapering, the the lack of availability, you know, prescribers who will no longer prescribe opioids, this this radical attempt to control the number of opioid prescriptions, you know, the the prescription drug monitoring programs that have been mm-hmm. in place mm-hmm. to try to to try to identify,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, prescribers who are prescribing too many opioids or pre- identify patients mm-hmm. who are, um, you know, uh, I'm, and I'm going to use I'm going to use air quotes here, which people can't see on a podcast, but um, who are you know engaging in in behaviors where it would seem like they were trying to get opioids, and so this is often referred to in horrible terms like doctor shopping and horrible mm-hmm. terms like like drug seeking, and if I could use air quotes in a podcast, I would. Uh, Cause I don't, those terms I think are very unhelpful and, and very stigmatizing and very harmful to a community that is just trying to get their needs met mm-hmm. and that is just trying to, um, you know, they, they uh, have a, a, a need for a medication that they're not getting access to because of, in many cases, this forced over, you know, de-escalation of prescribing and this forced tapering that's been happening. And what we know now from, from very good research studies, um, both, both uh, clinical studies, but also epidemiological data, is that these attempts to reduce op- opioid uh, prescribing have resulted in increased opioid overdose deaths, mm-hmm. increased opioid use disorder and, um, and increased suicide and mental health challenges. So, um, so these attempts to try to correct have been mm-hmm. have also, uh, in many ways, been a failure. Yeah. Um. So, so yeah, so, I can't even remember the initial question all of a sudden. but Yeah, uh, I,
0: I think you've answered it at this point. And so, yeah. <laughs> um, so moving on just a little bit, to what extent does the burden of these mental health challenges um, fall more heavily on members of minoritized populations?
1: Yeah, and this is a, another piece of, of, you know, a failed medical system generally. Um, what we know is that... Um, there's a lot of research, both from basic science and clinical science and epidemiological and epidemiological data, that um people from a minoritized community or historically more minoritized communities often um, do not get access to care. Mm-hmm. That their pain symptoms are not treated in the same way as patients from majoritized communities, mm-hmm. um, white, you know white patients. But, uh, and also are not getting access to the best evidence-based treatments. So, yeah. you know, for opioid use disorder, we know that methadone and buprenorphine are very effective medication treatments for opioid use disorder. Individuals from minoritized communities are not given get do not get access to those um, treatments as much as people from majoritized communities. Same thing with interdisciplinary pain treatment. So we know that the gold standard for for chronic pain treatment is uh, interdisciplinary rehabilitation, interdisciplinary pain programs. And uh, those are also less accessible to um, patients from minoritized communities. In addition to, um, there has been um, really, you know, devastatingly tragic work um, showing that, for example, um, uh, doctors are, and these are from kind of simulation studies where, where doctors are presented with
2: mm-hmm, um,
1: mm-hmm. A, a patient, a simulated patient, and then that simulated patient has demographic characteristics like mm-hmm. being a male or being a person who's black or being a person who's white. And um, that that research has clearly shown that that patients who um are, are not even real, but who are given the demographic characteristic of being black are more likely to um, have an associated disorder related to their substance use than a patient who is given the demographic characteristic of white with the same exact mm-hmm. scenario. Mm-hmm. So so showing that there is is basically ex- explicit bias towards patients depending on demographic characteristics.
0: So, you present in the paper a fascinating evidence based conceptual model of the development and maintenance of co occurring pain and substance use disorders. Could you walk us through your model, um, perhaps with a prototypical patient in mind, if that works for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I've got it pulled open, so I know I'm saying it right. <laughs> um, so, I think, first of all, uh, you know, the model starts with the notion that everything occurs within a sociological, ecological context. Absolutely. And so um, we are all living and breathing and behaving in an environment mm-hmm. and and are shaped by our social networks, by our neighborhood characteristics, by our environmental factor, other environmental factors, our policies, social determinants of health. So everything is happening within a context. And, and I, I really want to emphasize that because I think as as a field psychologists tend to focus so much on individuals and yeah. individual pathology mm-hmm. and i think as a field we have really failed helping people because of that focus mm-hmm. because we we often don't take into account the the fact that humans are in socioecological contexts mm-hmm. are shaped by social determinants of health are shaped by policies uh, in in their environments, and so all of this is happening within a context.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I get, I'll come back to a prototypical patient um, yes. in, in using it as an example. Um, and then, and then, all of us have histories, right? Mm-hmm. And so this model really starts from this idea that all of us have early life stressors, vulnerability, adverse childhood experiences. Uh, as well as, and I would say, taking it back even further, you know, historical trauma, intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, the, and just histories of, you know, how how we learned as very young kids to deal with distress,
2: mm-hmm.
1: how we learn to deal with pain.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: you know, we have learning histories uh, uh, that are shaped by our parents and shaped by their parents, right? And so, all of that is is kind of an initial potential vulnerability mm-hmm. or initial potential strength.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and so I think we need to consider that. And then, of course, there needs to be either, a, you know, an initial engagement in substance use or mm-hmm. initial pain. Experience mm-hmm. or both typically. And in the people we're talking about here, we're talking about patients with chronic pain and substance use disorder. So in, in their case, they're going to have both a, an initial injury um, and an initial substance use. So that's kind of our starting place is a context, a history, and then some initial behavior around substance use and some initial pain. And then and then People are living with experiences of ongoing challenges, distress, uh, peer and social modeling environments that we live in that can be um, on a spectrum of validating to invalidating. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that really um, can shape how those initial experiences of pain, how those initial experiences of substance use could develop into maybe something more than just that initial experience.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, again, I really want to put the focus off the individual as pathology. And that's a big part of this model is mm-hmm. that individuals do not have pathology. Mm-hmm. They, they uh, you know, react to their environment and, and their peers and their experiences of distress. Okay. So then taking that one step further is, is, I think, the key point of this model and the key point of, of this entire treatment um, is that there is a natural, very human reaction of not wanting pain of <laughs> and not wanting discomfort. Mm-hmm. right?
0: It's part of why um, you went to the ER.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And so we, we don't want pain and, and it's why pain is a vital sign now, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we don't want pain. We don't want discomfort. We don't want distress. We want those things to go away. And that is incredibly human and incredibly wholesome, right? When you're experiencing pain or distress, it's hard to go on living a valued life. And so we, we don't want that. It's getting in the way mm-hmm. of, of our, our dreams and our, our values. And so um, so there's a very human reaction of wanting that pain and distress to go away. And there's a very learned reaction of avoiding things that cause pain
2: mm-hmm.
1: or and or um, using substances to relieve pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and that pain might be physical, emotional, or just the pain of the distress and the mm-hmm, discomfort, mm-hmm. right? So all of that is very human and um, I would say completely wholesome and logical and not not pathologized. What can happen, though, is um, a kind of where this gets a little bit in the in the in the zone where people start having trouble and difficulties is that, when the avoidance of the pain and when the substance used to relieve the pain becomes uh, persistent. Mm -hmm. And so now we're doing, now the person is kind of avoiding their life to to avoid pain, or they're experiencing a lot of pain-related fear or pain-related memories. They're experiencing um, a lot of Substance use, or they're engaging a lot of substance use to relieve the physical or psychological pain, and so the idea here is that the the efforts, the initial efforts that are kind of uh, human and wholesome, become a little bit less. I don't want to say less wholesome, but become a little bit more problematic and a little mm-hmm. bit more harmful, um, and and start getting in the way even more, mm-hmm. um, and 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 that's when things start becoming a little bit more troubling and problematic. Mm-hmm. And then, if that continues, we start to see potential neuroadaptations. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done some work collaborating with uh, basic scientists who study sensitization to pain mm-hmm. and substance cues, hyperalgesia um, when using substances to, to treat pain. So it becomes kind of actually even harder um, that that initial, you know, maybe you could avoid pain. For a little while, or use a little bit of substances, and it helps relieve pain. Well, now it's not it's not working for you anymore, mm-hmm. and all of these kind of play into each other, um, and 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 then what happens with substance use disorder and with pain is that these behavior you engage in these behaviors to try to avoid the pain, and to try to relieve you know to use substances, um, and then you're kind of back to that discomfort stage and that yeah. very human reaction. Of like not wanting that and not wanting you know not wanting to to have the problems you're having mm-hmm, related sure. to your avoidance of pain and related to your substance use so um so all of this is kind of a bad a bad nasty feedback loop of mm-hmm. um, the more you avoid pain, the more you engage in substance use to relieve pain, the more pain you get and the more difficulties you have. yeah. And, and so that really is, I mean, you know, a prototypical patient, I would say, you know, comes in, in, in probably um, in a context that is um, potentially invalidating with policies that make it hard to get effective treatments with um, social determinants of health that might interfere with access to healthcare Mm -hmm. that would be effective. And, and they have initially some pain, some substance use They see other people who are getting relief from opioids, um, or, or, you know, previously parents had gotten relief from opioids or alcohol. Mm -hmm. They, um, you know, the person is, is really wanting that to go away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, I think, um, the pain avoidance piece is, is, um, really a, a strong thing that, you know, of course, we would avoid things that make us feel mm-hmm. pain, mm-hmm. right? Of course we would. And yet, that's when we start getting into trouble.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I like to use myself as an example. I'm actually someone mm-hmm. who's lived with chronic pain for um, almost 20 years now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when I had my initial back injury, um, I started avoiding experiences mm-hmm. that that caused my back to feel injured.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and and so even though I had previously been an athlete, uh, I, you know, stopped engaging in running, I stopped mm. engaging in sports, I stopped engaging in any sort of any sort of behavior, even even walking that w- would cause my back to hurt.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um and and then though, so, you know, the the pain was worse and, worse and worse and worse and worse, and um to the point where I was, you know, not really able to get out of bed at, mm. on some occasions. And and that avoidance of the pain and that disengagement caused a lot of spirals of distress sure. and, yeah. and, and depression and difficulties mm-hmm. in my life. And it's, it's really been, you know, um, a process of learning that actually, no, running, hiking, walking um, actually, like, has been very helpful <laughs> for, for my pain, mm-hmm. uh, for living a valued life. Mm -hmm. Um, so that gets more to the intervention piece, but, um, but I, I actually experienced, you know, over the, the, you know, the last 20 years, that, that cycle of, Mm -hmm. of having, um, pain avoidance that just actually got made the problem so much worse, much worse. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So as, as you, um, uh, write about in the paper, some of your recent scholarship has focused on the development and um, evaluation of a novel integrated treatment approach for chronic pain and substance use disorders um, it, that, of course, is based in part on this conceptual model that you just outlined for us. Um, could you describe your treatment approach, um, some for us, and any relevant empirical work you'd like to discuss?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, again, this comes back to, to my colleague, Kevin Vowles, and he really had uh, championed and had done a lot of clinical trials studying acceptance and commitment therapy for chronic mm-hmm. pain. So evidence-based treatment for for the treatment of chronic pain, uh, typically delivered in eight eight sessions as part often as part of an uh, interdisciplinary pain clinic. But mm. um, can be done individual, can be done in group, but often in group settings.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and again, kind of an eight eight week treatment um, with a, a strong evidence base. But had had been primarily you know with patients with chronic pain and not necessarily dealing with anything related to substance use disorder. And then my work had, had focused on mindfulness based relapse prevention, which is an evidence-based treatment for substance use disorder, um, particularly uh, more focused on kind of um, supporting recovery and and relapse prevention. Mm -hmm. So Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um, really, you know, once someone has, um, Maybe gotten uh, some treatment for their substance use, and now is is looking to sustain those gains. Um, now we have tested it as a as a as an outpatient individual treatment and as a group treatment uh, with with good evidence again for patients with substance use disorder. <laughs> also, an eight week group treatment. <laughs> so so what Kevin and I did was was basically look at and and largely uh, you know Kevin led led this work, uh, looked at the ACT acceptance and commitment therapy treatment manual and kind of laid out what a a 12-session treatment might look like where you started strong with acceptance and commitment therapy um, and then finished out strong with mindfulness-based relapse prevention. Mm. Can we we put these two treatments together? They really are both, you know, what we would call third-wave behavioral treatments. Mm -hmm. They're really based on the same model that that you um, you can't think your way out of these problems yeah, per yeah. se. That 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 there really is um, there needs to be some acceptance mm-hmm. and, and some awareness of our automatic tendencies as humans uh, to behave in certain ways, and that we need to we actually need to maybe counteract some of those automatic tendencies. And so mm-hmm. both of the treatments had those core ideas and, of course, mindfulness practices as a core, mm-hmm. um, acceptance practices as core. And so what we did was put together these two manuals mm-hmm. uh, that had previously been evidence-based for separate mm-hmm. conditions, chronic pain and, and substance use disorder separately, and put them together into an integrated 12-session treatment um, that, that integrates in every session acceptance and commitment therapy and mindfulness-based mm-hmm. treatment prevention. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. So every session has a little bit of both, but again, it kind of starts stronger on the acceptance and commitment therapy, thinking of that as kind of the initial treatment. We really want to get people to get some um, greater acceptance and um, ability to live with pain.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then we want to um, you know, really prevent relapse to the old ways of thinking and old ways of, of being with pain. And correspondingly, you know, training towards reducing craving, um, training towards reducing the the tendency to reach for substances Mm -hmm. in response Mm -hmm. to pain. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And so turned it into a 12-week group treatment. Um, We have tested it in a small pilot study Mm -hmm. uh, among veterans who um, had chronic pain and um, hazardous opioid use. Um, So they didn't necessarily have opioid use disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was published in 2020 in the Journal of Pain. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a small, small pilot study that showed really medium to large effect sizes Mm -hmm. in reducing uh, the target is not We're never actually targeting pain severity. Mm -hmm. We're targeting pain interference. Mm -hmm. How much does pain interfere with someone's life? Because Mm -hmm. the idea with this treatment is that you are going to have pain. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I will have pain for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And it will be there every single day. (laughs) And it's probably going to get worse Mm
2: -hmm.
1: as I get older. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we, we, the treatment really focused on how do you have valued living with pain?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How do you not let pain interfere with your life? And so pain interference is our, is typically our primary outcome. And, and we showed that this treatment in comparison to treatment as usual, kind of no, no integrated treatment mm-hmm. um, had, had large effect sizes on pain interference. Mm-hmm. Uh, correspondingly also reduced hazardous opioid use Hmm. um, and and medium effect sizes on on hazardous opioid use. So promising initial findings Mm -hmm. from a small small RCT, Mm -hmm. uh, small randomized clinical trial. So we are now conducting two studies uh, that are large scale efficacy trials. One is with veterans. Uh, We are actually, um, we just hit over 70% recruited (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> in that study, congratulations. Uh, and uh, in that is looking at patients who are prescribed buprenorphine
2: mm-hmm. for their
1: opioid use disorder. So we're moving full on into patients with opioid use disorder, diagnosed opioid use disorder who are receiving medications for their opioid use disorder and also have chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Um. And then the second study has just launched. We just randomized our first set of patients. Wow, that's um, exciting. They, yeah, we're, we're about to run our first group. Um, and that study is looking outside of the VA system. So uh-huh. non-vets, but yeah. patients, again, who are in um, opioid addiction treatment programs, getting buprenorphine for their opioid use disorder and who um, also have chronic pain.
0: Well, we'll have to revisit this in a few years.
1: Yes, yes. And I, I you know... We the feedback that we're getting from the clinicians in the VA study is really heartening hmm. because the feedback we're getting, and of course we're blinded still, so we don't oh, course, we can't look course. at any of the data. Yeah. Um, but the the feedback we're getting from the clinicians who are running that uh those groups is that patients love it.
0: That's They're that's so exciting. Students. That's so exciting.
1: We'll we'll hope the data, you know, bears that out. Sometimes it does, sometimes yeah, sometimes it doesn't.
0: it doesn't. Yep, yep. <laughs> So um, before we end for today, could you give us uh, briefly a sense of some of the most important future directions for um, research or clinical care, if you'd prefer, in this area?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, further research on the integrated treatment, uh, yes. obviously, it's, it's you know, any of these um, big component interventions, you know, this is a 12-session, 90-minute mm-hmm. sessions. I think the next question. It, let's say it works for some. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. so I think it will. Um, the next question is: what aspects of it are most effective? Can we uh, dismantle this treatment into something that might be more likely to be disseminated and implemented? A, a 12-week group session, 12-week group treatment, is a big ask for mm-hmm. a lot of busy mm-hmm. uh, treatment practices or you know clinical settings, and so. What what aspects um, you know can we can we isolate that might be most effective um, to maybe to maybe uh, reduce the intensity of the intervention if that's possible? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, if not, you know, then how how do we improve implementation of mm-hmm. a 12 session yeah. group based intervention in 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 a lot of clinical practice settings? Um, but I'm always looking to implementation and and. Yeah. I will say that the, the new trial that we just launched has a, an entire implementation focus. Oh, wonderful. To, to try to um, really appreciate and understand what what are the barriers and facilitators to implementing this in, in opioid treatment programs. Um, another big challenge is that, in, in what we're doing and trying to implement is that traditionally patients with chronic pain would go to one place for their pain treatment mm-hmm. and one place for their substance use treatment. Mm-hmm. So how, you know, how do we reduce that burden mm-hmm. and, and provide either, you know, integrate some opioid treatment or substance use treatment within pain mm-hmm. clinics, because pain clinics exist. Mm-hmm. How do we integrate um, pain treatment within substance use clinics? Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're, I mean, for this study, we're doing this in an opioid treatment clinic setting mm-hmm. um, and recruiting patients from opioid use disorder treatment. To see can we can we bring them this pain treatment to that yeah. setting, but then I think the next step is a trial among patients recruited from a pain clinic
2: mm-hmm. in
1: bringing this this integrated treatment to them in that context. So those are really important research directions. Um, you know, to what going back to the you know the conceptual model, what social determinants of health and community level factors yeah. are going to moderate treatment outcomes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're we're looking at in, in both of these studies, um, what policy level factors. Bo- both of these studies are multi-site, multi-state mm-hmm. studies with different policy environments. So what what policy level factors might be barriers or facilitators to these treatments being implemented and working effectively? Um, and then of course, you know, from a from a scientific perspective, I think, and this gets back to the dismantling or isolating most effective components i think we need to understand the mechanisms by which people change absolutely and then also you know potentially precision medicine approaches so who what who benefits most from this treatment and and these are you know heterogeneous patient populations that we're working with because we're working with patients who have you know co-occurring chronic pain and substance mm-hmm. use disorder most of them have a history of depression anxiety trauma most of them have other substance use going on, so either alcohol or nicotine or cannabis. So it's a very heterogeneous patient population. and uh, given that, you know are there particular patient characteristics that that respond best to the treatment um, sure. or that might need more more support or that don't need as much support who do really well mm-hmm. in our control mm-hmm. groups?
0: Okay. Well, Katie, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to um, share with all of us today, some of this fascinating work and important work um, that uh, uh, you and your colleague are doing um, in this area. So thank you so much for taking the time to share this uh, uh, important and impactful research with us.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and stay tuned. (laughs)